The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Well, another Sunday evening. It's been a very successful Sunday. Today we have uh, Anne has left town to go help her sister have open heart surgery. Um, and that's going to be tomorrow at 5 to pray for Debbie. would be very much appreciated by our family. And uh, Anne has already had her open-heart surgery. But let us proceed to what we're going to be looking at tonight, namely two scriptures in particular. But before that, the food for tonight, the food for thought, is um, eggs. The green stuff you see is chives. Some chickens in the back, and this is more. Hmm. Brown sugar and espresso fried bacon. Ken Reed, I see you. This bacon is for you. Look how thick it is. And we have the grapes of Engedi, or at least grapes. Okay, where are we? In the 20th century, Christians have accomplished the unthinkable. While making heart change everything, they managed at the same time to minimize the impact of heart change, reducing it down to a manageable size, to a, to a personal, internal adjustment, giving personal internal meaning to our lives. It has no real historic space-time significance other than enabling us to endure the failure and hardship which the failure of the gospel will inevitably bring to history. Heart change has no space-time significance for the 20th century Christian. And when you look at the 20th century, you know that must be true. Because during the 20th century, Christianity lost Europe, lost just about all the gains it had made. And in the meantime, it was one of the most successful evangelistic hundred years in the history of the world. So it's no surprise that the 20th century Christian expects God to be impotent to save the world, and God has to come and destroy it with fire and start over. When you look at how much heart change has meant to world change, it's almost nothing. So they've managed to make heart change everything in terms of the gospel. Hey, accept Jesus into your heart, he'll change you. And yet when somebody says, so what? The answer is, that strange beast called hell if I know. That's a cross between a rhinoceros and an elephant. Now, this doom perspective is changing as scripture is being re, re, uh, rediscovered. The 20th century will be the rediscover. the 21st century will be the rediscovery of what Jesus accomplished and its space-time historical impact to reconstruct the earth. Jesus Christ 
he is someone who changes the hardest heart to flesh, as Jeremiah and Ezekiel predicted. This transformation of the human heart in space and time history would not be just an odd is would not be just an odd incidental of the new covenant, but it is its distinctive feature making possible the transformation of the governments of the earth into the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So what we're going to do today is rather than talk a lot of philosophy, though it'll seem kind of philosophical, we're going to concretely look at Matthew 19, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Jesus, uh, is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason? And we're going to look at Jesus' answer there as he literally blows apart four, five, six thousand years of, of second best and goes back to the garden. Then we're going to look at Ephesians 5 where Paul builds on that. We'll examine how Christ reconstructs the family as he restores it to what God created, excuse me, decreed in creation. So just stop the tape and read these two chapters, and we'll pick up from there. Those of you who are listening, I'm going to change the format so I can read this a little more easily. Okay. Let's see if that works a little better. Now, have you read Matthew 19, Ephesians 5? You got them in place? Okay. It's going to have three parts, like Gaul is divided into three portions. Jesus cleared the family down to the foundation he laid when he created man, woman, and marriage in his image, declaring the man and wife and defining them as one flesh. That's the first thing. Jesus gets down to the foundation, and in Matthew um, 19 and Ephesians 5, he clears all the clutter off and leaves us with that foundation. Jesus had laid the foundation for human authority in the pattern of suffering service as the source of authority to rule. And then the third point is that Paul built a garden sanctuary family on that spot that Jesus had cleared. So we'll look at the first one. The temporary mobile home built because of the curse is now cleared away, leaving the creation foundation stone bare, ready to build on by his ethically and judicially transformed new covenant image bearers, husband and wife. Gone is the FEMA trailing, trailer park, where for survival, the principle of their relationship is to establish the man as ruling over the woman because of the curse. Using his greater physical powers to control her, I'm bigger and stronger than you. Submit like you're told. No longer does he use his economic power to control her. Hey, I pay the bills around here. You do what I say. No longer does he use his God-ordained power to rule over her. God told us that I would rule over you and you would love me for it. So take your clothes off. No longer does he, besides in the new covenant, Paul said, your body is not yours, it's mine. No longer does he use the power Moses gave him to threaten divorce and, and her expulsion. You better do what I say or you are out of here, woman, so quit nagging and undermining me, okay? You got that? No longer does he use the excuse that in the church a woman should not control the man. Look, Paul said he does not permit a man to rule over... Sorry about that. He does not permit a woman to rule over a man. 
So be silent like Paul told you to be. No longer can a woman demand that the man rule over her so as to flee her responsibility as an image bearer of God in the family, church, or state. I just can't handle the pressure, honey. You tell me what to do, what to vote for, or whatever. You're big and strong, and you are ordained by God to control me. See, it works both ways. It isn't just men gaining power. Don't get me wrong. The family ruled by the authoritarian husband was God's lifeboat, his trailer park, and it works well enough to handle the relatively light weight of the curse. It's just Jesus has come. And when you look at what Jesus said he established, what the prophet said he would establish, you can see that the authoritarian government in the family, which was appropriate for life under the curse before Christ, simply cannot bear the weight of glory Jesus designed from the beginning to shine forth from the family. Now, by the way, it's, it's, it's worth noting that each item demanded by the husband is a legitimate thing for the wife to do. And each has been used by many wives as her way to overcome and manipulate the authoritarian control of her husband. She's the neck turning the head, so to speak, as I've heard so many people tell me that that's the way it works when the man's in charge. The, the conflict comes when they are seen in an authoritarian conflict context to mitigate sin. In other words, they fell into sin, and to mitigate that, God puts the man in charge instead of in the redeemed context of the husband making no demands, realizing that he is unworthy of any attention from his wife, so he lays down his life for her, caring for her, as if he was caring for his own body. That's an important part of what Paul had to say, but we'll get there in a minute. And the wife, realizing that she is unworthy of her husband, and so loving all those things, that in an authoritarian union he could command her to love him with, you will love me, but instead from the heart doing all these submissive things and more, not as a format, but as she would care for her own body and as he would care for his own body. They command their body together. They are one flesh. Now I've given the whole talk away. The transformation Jesus offers is not a mere reversal of roles or a co-regency. In the end, you're going to hear Jesus rejecting the way of the Gentiles ruled in the church in almost the same words he used to reject Gentile rule in the home. All these ways of ruling over your wife and of her satisfied codependency or her dissatisfied rebellion are finished, over, done away with. Jesus laid down three ways that the cursed survival marriage was finished. Now, don't get me wrong again. I'm not saying authority is finished. I'm not saying anarchy now rules. What I'm saying is Jesus Christ has come. The world has changed. So the first thing that Jesus said right here, he said <clears throat> that it was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed divorce for any reason the husband want. See, that was then. This is now. Jesus is here. Why does that no longer apply? Because Jesus said that only applied because of the hardness of your heart. Why is the power-based marriage over? Because Jesus was changing their heart. And with that change came not merely a change in the law, but a full return to the garden kingdom of God. It's worth checking out some scriptures here, and I'll say them slowly if you want to write them down. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, 19. Ezekiel 36, 26. Jeremiah 31, 33. That's, that's slow for me, anyway. Hebrews 8.10. 
This isn't some obscure doctrine of scripture tucked away in the back room somewhere of the Holy of Holies. This is the bedrock of Jesus' teaching on government that he's giving you right now. From the beginning, it was not so. Each of those passages are describing the new covenant as an arrangement in which the heart of stone, which made it so because of the hardness of your heart, you could not love each other properly. The only way this was going to work was throw the power to the man and let him rule over you. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, Jeremiah thirty one thirty three, Hebrews eight ten. Each of these passages say the day of the hardness of the heart is over. So the first thing he said, because of the hardness of your heart, you had this power over the woman. The second thing he said was, but from the beginning, by the way, I'm just walking through a sentence, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, this is never the way he, God intended for creation to be run, for relationships to be dealt with. His reconstruction of his garden city kingdom justifies the deconstruction of the temporary authoritarian trailer park order necessary to survive the curse. That's why I compare it to a FEMA trailer park. After a disaster, you got to have somewhere to live. And so the trailer park's better than nothing. It enables survival. But it's not God's plan. And yet he still isn't finished in what he has to say. He says one more thing to definitively close down that cursed trailer park. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, stop here. Hello. Pay attention. Listen. He introduced marriage and the government of the home as the way he created it to be. Not the man ruling the woman. Not the woman ruling the man. Not both ruling together or both ruling in areas of competence over the other as are the ways I've seen it explained. None of the above. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Jesus transcends rule over in the sense of meaning, in the sense of controlling authority or power to set up policy, that sort of ruling over, that is used to characterize a marriage. Look at what he says. That is the authoritarian way of conceiving of authority in the family, because of the hardness of your heart. Then he takes back them back to his creation design. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And now Jesus is quoting directly his words of human institution, establishing them as God's image, both male and female, fully the image, fully sexually distinct. Neither is given authority or power over the other in, these, in this institution, except as a clue, the woman is called by God's kingly title, helper. Now, you may diminish that, you may put that down, but just to remind you, God uses that term to describe himself 17 times in the Bible. It's not applied to the woman in order to denigrate or demean her. She's only a helper. You see, being a helper is denigrating and demeaning in the authoritarian world that came about as a result of the curse. Now you have a pecking order. Who's in charge? Who's the helper? The helper is obviously not in charge. He's the servant. Uh, it's really straightforward. Who's the master of the house? They're in control. Who's the servant in the house? They're the ones who take order. Being a helper is demeaning, except when you realize that God uses that term to describe himself 
17 times, and then he goes beyond that. <clears throat> he uses it to describe what ministry is all about. There is no leadership in ministry if you think you're more than a helper. Then in the next breath, he defines the significance of creation for marriage and family. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Saying this, so far, Jesus restates what he said on the sixth day of creation. Mind you, Jesus, the wisdom of God in the Trinity at the right hand of the Father, they are creating the world. These are his words. And he's re-speaking them now into the new covenant situation. Uh, before the Sabbath crowned his work with fulfilled enthroning rest. But when rebuking the Pharisees, he speaks them again. He didn't stop there. Jesus returned in his final words to the Pharisees to comment on what he said at the beginning of time and apply it to his day, our day, when as God incarnate, he looks on man and wife and sees one, not two, one, not a co-regency, not a hierarchy, one. And his closing words to the Pharisees are, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. He quoted what he said at the beginning of time. He quoted what he said at the institution of male and female and husband and wife. And then he concludes with his summary now at the beginning of the new covenant, the new age, which he was bringing in and inaugurating. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But he's still not done. True, what he had just said would be more than any of us could have predicted or or today, what many of us are able even to receive. But he does more than just smash 4,000 years of the dominion of authoritarian hearts of stone, like Moses smashed the Ten Commandments when he got down from the mountain and saw what the hearts of stone were up to. What grows when Jesus smashes our hearts of stone is not another human-carved copy of the law, but a spirit-carved copy of the law of marriage, written on the hearts of flesh, which are no longer two, but are one flesh, and he dares anyone to undo this act. He says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man cast asunder. You let that sink in a minute. Immediately you're going to turn to questions of, well, how about divorce? Can there be divorce? If so, on what grounds? To adjudicate? Whoa, stop. Let's just talk about marriage for a second. There's more ways than divorce to define what God has joined together. There's bitterness, angerness, strife. Okay, there's those things, but there's more than that. There are ways of understanding the government of marriage and understanding the union that divide the husband and wife into lord and servant. There are governments of men and traditions of men which worked in their day. Remember the day when they were surviving in their trailer camp between the curse and the coming of God in the flesh. And now, in all finality, he casts these aside with four different sayings, some from the foundation of the world, some as comment on it, but he makes very clear, the Lord of creation is here, and he is now restoring what he created to be the way he made it. For its day, patriarchy was the best hard hearts could do in the face of the separation sin had driven between man and wife. Because of this division, God permitted the man to rule over her, even blessed it, even ordaining and empowering it, saying, hey, you can divorce her whenever you want. Looking ahead to the day of redemption, 
the Jubilee, when he would redeem all those made slaves because of their hard hearts and, and could only survive in governments of slave governments who could only be preserved through authoritarian governing structures, especially marriage. But from the beginning, it was not so. The symbolic union from the fall to the incarnation was restored to the true unity of creation after the cross and Pentecost. Okay, that's the first point. Jesus Christ lays that, clears everything off the foundation and says, from the beginning, you're to be one flesh. That's the way it is. No one in authority over the other. So the second thing, part of the foundation from the beginning, which Jesus explicitly laid, was his definition of authority and power. It's orange juice. For me, it's a rare thing because of the stupid keto diet. Some more grapes of Engedi. Where did Jesus' authority come from? He said, it, <clears throat> excuse me, it came from suffering service. Where does your authority come from? Well, who said, if anyone would be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. The cross defines the Christian life, Christian ministry, Christian purpose, and the basis of Christian authority to rule. Remember, the apostles were to rule. And he says the only way to get to that rule, to that authority, to that power, is on a cross. Because Jesus made suffering service of the cross the defining factor of his earthly ministry. When he says, Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, that confession is what I'm going to build my church on. He turns around and starts talking about the cross that he's going to have to die on. And Peter says, oh no, Lord, that cross is not for you. And Jesus says, Satan, you want to go from foundation stone of the church to Satan himself? Just take the cross out of ministry. The cross is the ultimate in service. Greater love have no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. It's the defining factor of Jesus' earthly ministry and of all authentic authority that any follower wishes to claim. There is no institutional church authority. There is no family authority apart from the cross. There is no authority in the new covenant. This service-based authority is as true in the home as it is in the church. Jesus is not just the prototype of the king. His definition of service applies equally to the king, the elder, the husband, and the wife. His law is the same for the small and the great alike. Who is to hold authority in his kingdom is also the same as who is the one who serves. He is the one who rules. This makes Christian rule impossible only for those whose faith is smaller than a grain of mustard. The ye of little faith, the oligopistoi, which is what Jesus called his fearful apostles, raised the question, why are we afraid to believe Jesus? Why do we think Jesus' words will plunge us into chaos instead of when he gave us his Holy Spirit and his revealed world, word he makes possible the transformation of the world? You see, the old way of governing ourselves simply won't do for the weight of glory which you are expected to bear. His is the only foundation firm enough not to crack under the weight of glory God has prepared for his people. <clears throat> On this created foundation, then, of one flesh and of authority through service, we come to the third point, and that's what Paul has to say about this. 
Paul builds a sanctuary home ruled over by one man, wife, flesh. I'll say that again. Paul builds the sanctuary home ruled over by one man, wife, it's man dash wife, flesh, who ruled the home. Listen to how Paul builds. This is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, that I'll be commenting on now. The Christian governance of the home is built around who serves the other. Paul, reflecting directly on the words of, the, of Christ, the master sits at the table, but I am among you as a servant. Therefore, make submission in the context of all authority in the church, not just in marriage. And in this passage, he goes, I'm not going to go into all of it, but he's talking about this is what marks the church, submission. It's not submission to a leader in the church. It's what marks the church. No submission, no leader. It's not that no submission, no people we, we will follow. We'll follow all kinds of people, especially the ones who slap us in the face, especially the ones who have high-sounding books of church order, which show exactly where everybody stands and what the hierarchy is and what we can expect. Oh, yeah. We're glad to submit to them. Paul said that to the Corinthians, by the way. I'm quoting him. He says, hey, I'm sorry, you guys. You would have like, treated me with more respect maybe if I slapped you in the face like they do. But Paul rejects as leaders those with the power to set policy, police policy, or control God's people. That's not his definition of leadership. Watch the sanctuary Paul, home Paul Bills grow. General mutual submission is the mark of the church. Quote, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how he begins his passage. Now, apply this, applying this to the wife, he says, Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the Christian, as to the Lord doesn't mean do anything he says as if you're married to Jesus. It means your submission is in all ways reflective of your husband's reflection of Jesus Christ, which was as a servant, not as the master making demands at the table. At first, the childish eyes, filled with authoritarian lording it over each other, and the reason I call them childish is because at the fall, what was happening there was Adam and Eve needed to gain that ethical, moral, judicial uh, uh, authority and dimension in their life so that they could rule the earth. That's what being a mature adult is. It's somebody who's come to the fullness of an understanding of, of what God's law and ethics are and what the Holy Spirit does in their life and how to make sound judgment based on them. Okay. Since our perspective is so thoroughly filled from the perspective of the curse that needed that authoritarian lording it over each other, it sounds like Paul is establishing the godlike ability of the man to just decree over his wife. And if that's all he wants, maybe Paul was saying something like that. But that's not all he wrote. We forget what Jesus said about the, his relationship to the church, however, and stick to the tried and true Gentile model of elections have consequences, or <laughs> marriage vows have consequences, which is, to quote both Obama and Trump, together in their excellent pagan summary of the power of the ruler. And that is a pre-Christian understanding. The one in charge sets policy. The one in charge polices that policy. The one in charge enforces that policy and adjudicates it. But that is clearly not why Paul brings up Jesus' headship for the husband. Quote now, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Now, 
you've heard headship debated. Headship can mean about 27 different things. And you go do a word study on headship and you find it can mean all these different things. But they are irrelevant to argue about because Paul doesn't say, now go to the lexicon and find out what headship means, you Greek scholars out there. Paul tells you what headship means. What he means is very clear. Keep reading. The head and the body go together, and both are dead when you sever them, and both are spastically useless when they're not one. That one flesh is critical to the union of the head and the body, to the meaning of Christian authority. The husband is like Christ in his headship. He's not Christ in every possible meaning of the word head, or even in the meanings that might fit our ideals and ideas. What Paul has in mind here, based on his words, is not a theory of who is in charge, who directs the body, who sets policy body, though all of those things are possible implications of headship. For Jesus, being the head saves the body. Headship means you are the daily rescuer of the body. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which means that headship makes him the savior. Because the very next clause, the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. That's what headship means. Salvation represented in the husband acting like Jesus toward his wife is the basis of the wife's submission, not his ability to set policy or his superior physical or economic or even intellectual strength, whether he possesses any of these things or not. Mind you, I'm not putting the husband down. The husbands, you don't have those abilities, those, those gifts. Any man, small or great, however, can lay down his life for his wife. And this is what Jesus did, something anyone can do. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So you have this mutual submission going on here. The wife's submission is based on the salvation of Christ exhibited in her husband's representation of the salvation of Christ. That's headship, not the ability to set policy, the it's the ability to serve. It's in every husband's reach. It's in every wife's reach. Just in case you miss this, listen to what Paul says to the husband. First, there is not one word of what Paul has to say directing, controlling, or setting policy for the wife. First comes love. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Not just any way you want to define it, but through sacrificial service. Because the love is as Christ loved the church. So it's not just any kind of love. It's sacrificial self-service. Secondly, Paul doesn't leave love to some vague imagination or romantic impulse or suggestions that sometimes tough love is called for to get a wife and children in line. Uh, do you know that there is actually a Bible commentary which, which talks about, the, it's from about 15 or 16, uh, 20, Never mind, I won't talk to you. It's called the wife-beating Bible. From time to time, the husband must beat the fear of the Lord into her head, lest she be rebellious. Now, it's, it's, it's not just any sort of love. It's the sort of love that causes you not to beat your wife, but to lay down your life for her. Not to berate your wife, set schedule for your wife, be sure that your wife knows everything that you think she ought to do. It's the sort of love that causes you and Christ to give yourselves up for her that you might sanctify her, in this case talking about Christ, that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's not a word here of control. There's not a word here of command. 
There's not a word here of setting policy. Even as in Christ, the central analogy to his power over all things is his service. The purpose of the giving himself up is not to tell her what to do or to take charge of the discipline of her holiness. Be sure her Bible studies and prayer times are right. Third Paul, following Jesus' Matthew 19 lead, and he had to have been thinking about it, listen to what he says here, describes the end of the authoritarian marriage. Paul comes back to the one flesh Jesus spoke of in creation, and again to the Pharisees, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Echo, one flesh. Love their wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Echo, one flesh. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Echo, one flesh. But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. This, lie, this is not giving her a to-do list, not coming home at the end of the day and see if she did it. This is lying cuddled up in bed, sharing about the events of the day, murmuring encouragement to each other. This is lovemaking. This is not making a list, checking it twice, being sure that your chores, wife got her chores done so that she's nice and not naughty. It's because we are members of his body. Paul said, continue talking about Christ and the church. Echo, one flesh. It is not only at Christmas that people confuse Santa Claus with Jesus or confuse the power of the husband with the power of control. Finally, Paul concludes pulling all of his double points out here where he's, he's bouncing directly off the concept of being one flesh, one body, united with Christ, together with the words of Jesus at creation at the reinstitution of the recreated order. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says it, concluding, driving the nail home in the coffin of, we need somebody in authority here, the same way Jesus did. The words of Jesus in the institution of the created order, and the same words Jesus repeated at the reconstruction of the created order, followed by the commentary on the wor those words by Paul, makes clear that one flesh is not a hierarchy, but rather it is both the basic government of dominion and its central task. Like the central task of those who rule in the church, the central task of one flesh leadership in the home is to as quickly as possible disciple those in their care to full, independent, adult, spiritual, self-governing maturity. Children growing to adulthood, who have hearts of flesh with God's law written on them and the fullness of the Holy Spirit operating within them. This isn't his job. This isn't her job. This is not their job as if they're co-rulers. They are one flesh. They bear God's image. They reflect God's trinity. The world has changed. Christmas has happened. Jesus Christ reestablishes creation in the family and ends the long night of authoritarian government and marriage. What God has joined together, let not the traditions of men break asunder. Men who long for the days when the curse ruled our hearts of stone and men were men and ruled their women well. And now, more food, my friends. And the Lord bless and keep you and make his face shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, and grant you peace.
Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.